Um, it is a joy to be here with you this morning. My name is Father Matthew, and until recently I was the priest at Emmanuel Indicator, and now I am just a priest at large, which goes well with being a large priest. Um, our gospel text this morning is one of my favorites. Um, I mean, all the resurrection texts are the best, uh, but this is, I think, my favorite of the favorites because of the details. And so rather than like giving some intro or telling a joke, I'm just going to start because there's so much in this text that I think speaks to where we are right now, wherever you are, knowing that uh, God finds us in the ordinary moments of our life and gives resurrection power and meaning to those moments. And that's what we find in today's story. So I'm just going to draw like five principles from it, and we're just going to go through it. If you have a Bible, feel free to follow along. The first thing we see in this text is that the presence of Jesus brings peace to his friends. Peace be with you are the words that Jesus speaks to his friends when he finds them. Now, when he finds them, it tells us that they're afraid. And the reason that they're afraid is because they, it says, for fear of the Jews, which means that the reason they're afraid is because they know that what just happened to their Messiah, or rabbi rather, could very likely happen to them. And really, Rome wouldn't think twice about it. It was fond of doing these sorts of large, spectacular snuffing out of upstarts and rebellions. And so they were hiding because they feared not only Rome, but they also feared the religious rulers. Everyone was pitted against them, and he, Jesus finds them in this place of fear. Now, you have to ask yourself, if you read the earlier parts of John, how did they get afraid? Because we know that just in the earlier, page, earlier verses of this chapter, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and she sees the tomb is empty. John and Peter run to the tomb. John is faster than Peter. He wants you to know that. They get to the tomb. They look in. They don't see what's going on there. They, they just see that it's, it's empty and that Jesus has apparently made his bed after rising from the dead, which is pretty cool. And then Mary has an encounter with the living Jesus, the risen living Jesus. And then she goes back because Jesus says, go and tell my brothers that I go before him. So he, she goes back, gives the report, and yet here we find them hours later, four hours later, whatever, in the house afraid. And Jesus finds them. And he does not say what you might expect. Like, I thought you heard the news already. He doesn't say, for shame. He says instead, peace. Which is good news for us, I think. That Jesus understands that it's possible for you and me to be so internally divided that we might know something ultimate up here, but the immediacy of what we're living through and the confusion of what's right in front of me is actually making me feel more afraid in this moment than brave. That Jesus is not ashamed of that, he actually understands it. And when he finds us in those places of confusion, rather than speaking a word of shame to us, he says, I'm here to give you peace in the midst of your confusion. Yes, something ultimate is true, and thanks be to God, but also right here and right now, you don't have to be afraid of that thing that's right in front of you. I know in a room with this many people, there's a lot of things that people are afraid of. All of us are carrying different things. Some of us in here are afraid about finances. We're afraid because if you're like me, you notice that the price of everything keeps going up, but the money coming in is not. Or maybe you're just experiencing someone that you love uh, fading into bad health, dementia, whatever, and you're wondering, how much longer do I have with this person? If you have kids in here, no matter how old your kids are, there's always something to be afraid of. If your kids are out of the house and they're adults, you're afraid that they're going to make good decisions, that they're going to you know, meet the right person. You're afraid about this relationship that just started. If your kids are at home and teenagers like mine, you're afraid of uh, everything. You're afraid of their peer group. You're afraid of what's, what's influencing them. You're afraid of their phones. You're afraid of what they're doing on their phones when you're not in the room. If you have younger kids, you're afraid of who their friends are going to be and what sort of things they're learning in school. And 
You might be afraid that there's a sort of an undiagnosed learning disability and you don't know what that would mean for your family. Or if you have a baby, they're not meeting milestones yet. And, and, and so there's all this anxiety and fear. And if you're pregnant in here, you're just afraid constantly because you can't control anything. You just stop eating deli meat. And besides that, you have no say in what's going to happen. <laughs> and that's just if you have kids, if you are in a relationship, you're afraid that maybe this person is going to finally figure out what everyone else has figured out about you apparently. And they're going to eventually fall away too. Or maybe you have bigger fears in mind, like geopolitical things, and you're just thinking all the time about Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan and Palestine and Israel, or about the earth and how it keeps getting hotter and the storms keep getting worse, or you're worried about who our next president's going to be, or you're worried about the laws that are being passed in red states and blue states and what they say about what our country is. There's so many things to be afraid of. And then there's like the really secret private things that no one knows we're afraid of, but that we do because when we are awake in the middle of the night, that's what we think about. Like, what if someone finds out? Like, what if someone knows who I really am? Some of you in here, you might have grown up in conservative places, and you're afraid because you think you might be gay. All of these things, they haunt us. They stick on us. They, they, and Jesus finds us in the place of fear and confusion, and he says, peace. Peace, friends. And not just because I'm here, not just because Jesus the ghost has now passed through the wall, and I don't have to be afraid because Jesus the ghost is with me. The reason I don't have to be afraid is because something ultimate is now standing in front of me. It's a definitive word that no matter what is in front of me and how scary it might feel, there is on the other side of this scary moment, endless life and a good end. That the story I'm living in, no matter how dark or scary it might seem in this moment, it has a good end because Jesus is alive and breathing and living in the room. Peace, he says to us. And then he does three things after saying peace. He, uh, he shows them his scars, he breathes on them, and he commissions them. Three very interesting things. Let's look at them one at a time. The first thing he does is he shows them his scars. He says, look at my scars, which I think about deeply every year at this time. Not that I'm a deep thinker. I just think, I try to think deeply about it. And, and it's because I think it's, it's fascinating that the risen body had scars. Like it didn't have to have scars, right? We know that the resurrected body of Jesus was not the resuscitated body of Jesus. We know that because... Um, He's different. He can do things that he couldn't do before. He passes through walls, and yet he still eats fish. He's not an apparition. He's a physical being, but he has supernatural powers to do things that normal human bodies can't do. He's recognizable enough that his friends see him and go, oh, yeah, that is Jesus, but not recognizable enough that they don't at first go, who are you? So there's something about the body of Jesus that's transformed, that's other enough, so it didn't need to have on his body the marks of the nails and the spear. In fact, we know that it never says that he had the crown of thorn scars on his brow still, or the back, the, the lash marks on his back. These are the particular things that God decided for whatever reason in his ultimate wisdom to mark forever on the permanent body of Jesus. We just sang it, these wounds yet beautiful above in glory, uh, beautified, something like that. I'm sorry, Nick, I butchered it. But you guys, you sang it, and you can look it up on your phones later. Anyway, we know that there's something about that's mysterious about this, that God has decided to keep scars around. I was, uh, on Good Friday, I was doing the Stations of the Cross, and um, hopefully some of you had the chance to do that as well. And the Stations of the Cross, of course, is the journey uh, all the way from the, the trial to Jesus being brought down off the cross. And there's something that always stands out to me when I do the Stations of the Cross, and, and um, this year I was just watching and I noticed I was, kept looking at his hands during the stations. And I, and, I, and I was like, why am I looking at his hands? What's going on? What, what's up? And then I was like, oh, I'm looking at his hands because they look wrong. 
And why do his hands look wrong? Because they don't have the marks on them yet, right? There's something about the scars that make it Jesus. It's like you know it's him because of the scars. Now, Jesus, according to Paul, the resurrected Jesus, is the first fruits of the resurrection, which means I know that most of us in here aren't farmers. First fruits is an agricultural term which says this is an indication of what the rest of the crop is gonna look like. So when we look at the resurrected Jesus and we see scars in his hands and feet, we can have some understanding of what our resurrected bodies are going to be like, which is to say this, maybe, maybe the things in this life that have most shamed us that have been the sources of our greatest pain and trauma, maybe there's some way in which God will choose to mark those things on us. And those will be the things that our friends will be able to say, oh yeah, it's you. Maybe there's something so beautiful about and so holistic about what God does in salvation that he takes the things right now that you would not want to be what you are known by. Nobody wants to be known by the worst thing that's happened to them. And yet, what if God's salvation was so holistic, so, so abundant, that even the things that today you're so embarrassed by, you wouldn't want someone to know about, they are going to be one day maybe the first thing you show a person. That somehow there's an indication God is, he's touched everything. There's no part of my story or life that's too dark. God could expunge the record. He could wipe it. He could erase the whole thing and you could forget about all the terrible things. But what if instead we were able to on the other side of glory to see them with resurrected eyes and they became for us part of our beauty? What if they became the thing that says this is how big God is? Even this part of my story, God redeemed. And then Jesus does two other things. He breathes on them and he commissions them. The breathing thing is very interesting but should not surprise us if we have been reading John's gospel with uh, Old Testament eyes, which probably we haven't. But John is in the gospel telling the new Genesis. He begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. Just as Genesis begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then on Easter Sunday, John is the only one who makes certain that we understand that the place in which Jesus comes back to life is a garden. He tells us this because he wants us to know that the garden, just like in Genesis 3, the garden is where this is all beginning again. That what God is doing is he's starting over. And the early writers of scripture totally got this. This is why Paul is constantly saying, in Adam is this, but in Christ is this. Because we see in Christ the new Adam, the new start, in the garden in which Jesus walks out of the tomb. In fact, what is, how does Mary mistake him? Do you remember? Mary thinks he's the what? The gardener, right. And what was Adam's first vocation? To tend the garden of Eden. And the Lord planted a garden in the east and put Adam there to tend it. So Adam, our first calling as human beings is to be gardeners. And Jesus is now the new gardener. And so what does he do? He shows up to his friends and he breathes on them. Because in the beginning, in Genesis, we read that God made Adam, that's just the word for human, not necessarily the name Adam. God made Adam from Adama, that is the dust of the earth. So the only thing that distinguishes Adama from Adam is that in Adam, God takes Adama and breathes the ruach, the breath, the spirit, the wind of God into Adama. And the thing that makes you and me living creatures is that we have the wind, the breath, the spirit of God, even right now, effortlessly rolling in and out of our lungs as an indication that we are living things, not piles of clay and dirt. And so Jesus, he's reenacting the whole thing. He's so good. I love it so much. He's, he does the whole, he's so perfect. He goes back and he says, we're gonna redo the whole thing. I'm going to once again breathe 
the wind of God into your lungs. And then he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Which probably felt intimidating in the moment. After all, they're afraid, right? And we know that they don't totally get this because you know what they do the next chapter? They go fishing. So they don't totally get what this means, okay? They, they, it takes them some time to figure out what it's gonna mean to live into this thing. They're like, I guess we'll go fishing again. I don't know what to do. We don't have a rabbi to follow around anymore. But Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you now into the world. And what does that mean, friends? That as God sent the Son into the world, now he sends you into the world. What does that mean? I mean, it doesn't simply mean that I should get one of those WWJD bracelets from the 90s and try once again to ask in every situation, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Although that's, that's a great thing to ask, for sure. Um, one of my spiritual writers, my spiritual writers, my favorite spiritual writers, a guy named Henry Nouwen, wrote this in The Wounded Healer, great book. He says, when the imitation of Christ is not, uh, it, uh, does not simply mean to live a life like Christ, but to live a life as authentically as Christ lived his, well, then there are many ways and many forms in which a woman or a man can be a Christian. And I love, I love his thing there because he's not saying that what made Jesus unique is not his power, his purity. Those things are what made Jesus Jesus. But also that Jesus is, if you read the Bible, the New Testament, one of the things that's so great is how remarkably consistent he is in every environment, whether he's at a Pharisee's house, whether he's hanging between thieves, whether he's walking on water, or he's in a boat with his disciples. He is always himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to always be myself. I have versions of me that I pull out in different times. I'm pulling out pastor version right now. This isn't the version my kids are gonna get when I get home because they'll roll their eyes. You guys get this version. This is, we have different versions of ourselves that we give in different places. Jesus was remarkably consistent. And here's, I think, the good word about like, what now is, is calling us to in that. If Jesus says, here's the spirit of God, here is access to the breath, the wind of God, the same thing, we, we saw this last week, John, John talked about it, the same thing that gives, that raised Jesus from the life is now at work in our mortal members. So this now, this power, this presence of God is now here and active within me and he calls you and me to do what? To be who God made you to be in your context. Your vocation, your calling is not to do great things in front of people. Your vocation is to be who God made you to be with the power of the Holy Spirit to the people around you. In other words, most of our calling in life is not gonna be seen by more than a couple people. Most of our calling in life is very simple and small. And your calling does not in any way mean that you need to, you need to be a pastor or you need to always be evangelizing or evangelize with your life. Evangelize with the way that you look at spreadsheets, with the way you change diapers, with the way you brew coffee. Every part of life now has consequence and, and meaning to it because the spirit is a part of it. Everything we do has meaning from making a meal for a neighbor to the way that we, you know, whatever, tend to a garden in our yard. All of these things now have consequence and meaning to them because the spirit is a part of it, because Jesus has breathed the spirit into us. He wants to make us brave to live into this calling. And then, I know you think I'm coming in for a landing. And then you have the other, a whole other story, Sermon 2. You have this, I'm sorry, it's not gonna be as long, I promise. But you have this, you have this poor character named Thomas who forever in the church has been called what? Would we know what he's called? 
Doubting Thomas, how unfair is that, that forever we know this man as the one time he asked a question. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't in the room. He wasn't in the room. Wouldn't you ask a question if you weren't in the room? Because, and John talked about this last week, we know that there is no resurrection in the middle of human history. We know these things. So how can you be saying that that is now what, exactly what has happened? So he asks a question and forever is termed Doubting Thomas, unfortunately. But I want to say there's something beautiful in this because once again, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do with Thomas? He doesn't show up and say, you couldn't believe the other 10? He says, peace to you. In other words, Jesus is not uncomfortable with Thomas's questions. Maybe we are, but God is, in my experience, always very, very willing to oblige our questions. In fact, you could say, and I actually would say, doubt is a part of being a Christian. Again, it's possible to be that divided in ourselves, to know a thing and to still not know a thing fully. In fact, we read in Matthew 28, verse 16, that when Jesus, the risen, ascended, or risen Jesus, presented himself to the apostles, it says, and they worshiped him, but some doubted, which is the most human sentence in the Bible. It's what we all would be feeling in that moment. Is this real? Can I trust this? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't comport with my understanding of how the world's supposed to work. Can I, can I believe this? And I just want to say to you, friends, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear, in, in, especially in the church, around like asking too many questions because we're afraid we might end up spiraling off into unorthodoxy. We might end up leaving the whole thing behind. We might just discover that the questions are too big. God is not impressed or embarrassed or ashamed by the size of your questions. In fact, I think I really do believe God loves questions. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is God wrestling with Jacob and then naming him Israel, the one who wrestles with God. If you want to know what it means to be a person of God's family, it is to be a wrestler, a one who struggles and doubts. It's not to say that doubt is the end all. I'm saying the reason that doubt is so important is because it keeps the channels open for relationship. When I ask a question, there's a potential for an answer. When I just do the, the, the good thing and I stuff it down and I refuse to let anyone into the things that I'm afraid of, well, now I'm an island. God can't penetrate that, or he won't, rather. He could. But when I open myself up and I say, I don't understand these things about you, and God is cryptic. He doesn't make sense. Find a story in the Bible where God shows up and the first thing isn't a question on the other side. It never happens where the angel of the Lord comes and he says, I want you to do these things, and the person goes, that sounds great to me, makes perfect sense, and off they go. It doesn't happen. God's not afraid of your questions, friends. He loves it. I really think that maybe one of the things that we can do that would be a, a, an incredibly brave spiritual practice would be to begin to ask questions and then sit in the silence. One of the most transformative seasons of my life happened when I just asked a question every day. Eh, not every day, that sounds too good. We'll say three days a week for about 10 months, and then God answered the question. I've never doubted since, because when God answers the question, it checks the box. You're like, okay. Don't be afraid, friends of your doubt. It's part of the journey, and Jesus doesn't shame us. He finds us in it and says peace to us, because, and this is the last thing I'll say, it is not the size and the greatness of your belief and faith that gives life. John says at the end, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing may have life in his name. And you could say maybe, or we could sometimes think, that what that means is that I need to find in myself the, 
this, this deep, abundant faith that leans all the way into God and trusts him with everything. And, and friends, I, I, I know hardly anyone who's ever been able to do that. It is not the greatness of your faith that saves you, but the greatness of the God in, who your, in whom your faith is in. As Tim Keller says, great faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a great branch. And so... Whatever you have today, sometimes we feel, I don't know about you, but sometimes, I mean, the last several years has really kicked the legs out of a lot of us. There's a lot going on in the world right now that creates a lot of confusion and sadness and fear and doubt and all sorts of things. There's a lot of messages that are coming to us from all sides that tell us that we should be doubting this whole thing, that none of this really makes sense. And Jesus meets us right in those places and says, peace to you. I'm not afraid of your questions. And it is not the greatness and the depth and the breadth and the sustaining power of your faith that saves you. It is my depth and breadth and sustaining power that saves you.